if I don't look at the next generation, who am I to step on their rights to the same things that were fought for for me? You've got to involve members to build a fighting, strong labor movement to where they're saying our union, not the union. The Farm Bureau has an opportunity to really work with the labor movement and the advocate for farm workers to work out something that works for them as well as works for the farm workers themselves. But I don't, I think that they're going to resist it. What this focus on CRT is all about, to make up this story that teachers are telling white kids that they should be ashamed of their race or ashamed of their background as part of the curriculum in schools. That is not happening. Unless we have a law that put the legal binding for the international company, the brand can make any excuse, ignoring the, the exploitation, ignoring the violation of the workers' right or labor rights in the supply chain. The reality is that at every step, the system is rigged to favor the big national and multinational food companies. He turns to her and is just like, you know, our, our goal is to be pleasant and interchangeable. You know, the guest doesn't even know what they want. We just sort of like give it to them and go away. Blubber Bay turned into a strike like no other. Welcome to this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm Chris Garlock. To hear more labor shows, go to laborradionetwork.org, where you can search by name, topic, and even location. Striking Kellogg's workers rejected a contract settlement earlier this week. One of those strikers, Todd Manousas, from the Bakery Workers Union in Battle Creek, Michigan, explains why on The Rick Smith Show. Then, on Building Bridges, Teamsters for a Democratic Union national organizer Ken Papp celebrates a new era of union democracy and militants. Dennis Hughes has a plan to create fair working conditions for farmers. The former New York State AFL-CIO president explains how on the latest episode of the Union Strong podcast. On AFT in Action, protecting workers' freedom to teach with Connecticut Education Association President Kate Diaz and U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Wage theft is a global problem. The LaborLink podcast tells us how an NGO is helping Cambodian workers fight back. On the For a Better World podcast, what the push to get big or get out means for dairy farmers, workers, and consumers, and some ways to challenge that growing corporate power. A fictional workplace campaign to unionize the hotel workers at the illustrious White Lotus is the subject of the latest Labor Wave radio show. And from on-the-line stories of B.C. workers, the Battle of Blubber Bay, an epic confrontation just before World War II between mine workers fighting for justice and an arrogant company with authorities in their hip pocket. That's all ahead. Here's the show. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So interesting. We talked about a couple of days ago how there was a tentative agreement uh, with the BTCGM union, uh, the Bakery Confectionery Tobacco and Grain Millers Union, and Kellogg's, and and I said, you know, I'm not sure that this is enough. I, I you know, I was talking about, you know, the the main issue was the two tier wage system, and it didn't look like it closed it enough for me. And I, you know, I wasn't sure. Uh, I was not surprised, however, when it was overwhelmingly rejected. Uh, and now the story is going like this, and I, I'll tell you, I think this is part of me goes, this is the setup. Uh, but Kellogg has announced that they're going to start permanently replacing uh, the striking workers, which this is where uh, I'm hoping having a new general counsel at the National Labor Relations Board, I'm hoping this becomes that moment where we go back and overturn this kind of this kind of behavior where companies are looking to replace their employees. But here to share some thoughts on, well, why they voted down the uh, the contract, the temporary the 
the tentative agreement and where they go from here. I've asked uh, Todd Manusos to come and talk with us. Todd is a striking BCTGM worker there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Todd, thanks for taking time for us. Yeah, absolutely. But we're in Battle Creek. Battle Creek, Michigan. Up, oh, screwed that up. Battle Creek. And how can I screw that up? That's that's uh, one of those things. It's one of those things I knew. Uh, let's start with the vote. Um, I was not surprised that the vote went down, uh, given what was what was put out in in the the news stories. Uh, why why do you think it? Why do you think the vote went the way it went? Well, I like you just hit the nail right on the head. I mean, the, the why we went on strike hasn't been addressed. You know, it's the, there, the, I didn't, I haven't been on the, out on the strike line all this time to come back for this type of contract. You know, it really didn't, uh, so far as um, the transitionals path to full time could take excess of nine years, you know, and then the, it was just plain garbage. That's, yeah, I, it, it was move, it was movement a little bit where they came off some of their other ridiculous uh, uh, have to haves. But uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, when we're really looking at like the red and beaten potatoes of this thing, it's garbage. So, so hold on. I'm going to go back to this for a second because nine years to get to the to the full rate. Nine years. It it could theoretically take some employees over nine years to get to it. So while they they like to boast within the media, it's yes, we've created uh, a path or we've kept the path. They made the path, you know, theoretically a million miles long. You can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel for that for for some people. It's not a realistic um, time frame for someone to start at a, at a place of employment and then graduate to full time. And, you know, as we've talked about uh, when we've been talking about this uh, for the last several weeks, because you guys have been on strike, what, nine weeks now? Uh, yeah, for, um, probably more. Yeah, as it was we, the last nine weeks, we've been talking about this, and and you know, you, you go, how is it that you can have a workplace where there is such a a massive gap between the folks who are making top rate and and the folks who've been there a couple of years and and making so much less with worse benefits and worse retirement security? How do you how do you keep that workplace together, especially in a union environment? I would argue that is put in place specifically to divide and conquer you guys. Oh, absolutely. They want have and have nots. You know, my my path to there, my dad worked there for 34 years. He got me there as a, a summer help pro program. So that's how I started my career. Kellogg's have been there for 24 years now. Um, I've been kind of in the shoes of the newer people, not getting the same rate, uh, not getting the same per protection. But it was all under the guise that that would go away. You know, and the, I've had people like my dad. Uh, people that were friends with my dad and stuff like that protect me, look after me and things like that. So who am I if I don't look at the next generation, even if my kids want to work there, my stepdaughter worked there this summer, who am I to step on their rights to the same things that were fought for for me? You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick at rick at com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. We're Building Bridges with Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash. The new leadership of the powerful Teamsters Union says they'll dare to struggle and dare to win against the bosses warring on the workers. We're here with Ken Pack. What does this victory mean after these decades of fighting for union democracy and still the issue of union democracy for really building a strong working class? Well, I think the relationship is you've got to involve members to build a fighting, strong labor movement to where they're saying our union, not the union. If you look at the history of labor, when unions have grown is when there is more membership involvement and even more turmoil in the unions. Too many labor leaders say, well, if I don't get any grievances and no one comes to the halls, that means all the members are happy. It means all the members are passive. We're not going to grow. We're not going to build. And corporations are going to continue to kick us in the ass. The way solidarity can beat corporate greed is with a lot more member mobilization, involvement, empowerment, more leaders coming up from below. That's our mantra in TDU. I'm very happy for the vote this week. 
it didn't change the leadership, but it said to the leadership, we want to have the right to vote because you've been signing two-tier agreements. And it was 64%, which is a heavy margin, but in the automotive production plants, I went down the locals, it was 70 and 80% of the workers are saying, we want to directly elect international officers because they're selling us out. They're signing two-tier agreements. They're unable to organize. They can't organize a whorehouse with a pocket full of $100 bills. They really want to change. And as was said by other speakers tonight, we're seeing some upsurge in the labor movement. It's still small. Corporations are still winning. I live in California, which has more billionaires than anywhere else on earth, and I think we have more homeless, too. And there's something really, really wrong with that picture. It's going to take a lot of a powerful movement to confront the power of the billionaires in this country and in the world. So we want to be part of that. You came out of. You supported the Teamsters United. But tell us a little bit about Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Teamsters for a Democratic Union, we are the insurgent reform movement. We don't call ourselves a caucus. We call ourselves a movement because that's our thrust. It's our emphasis. We are a caucus, obviously, by definition. And yes, we supported Teamsters United. We were part of a broader coalition of forces that came together, some of whom have been with Hoffa, some of whom were with the insurgent TDU movement. A lot of this came out of rejection of sellout contracts, two-tier agreements, contracts in the trucking field, in car haul, in the freight industry, which is industrial trucking, and United Parcel Service, which is the largest labor contract in the United States with 350,000 members. TDU is about empowering workers, transforming our locals, developing more leaders, developing a more diverse leadership in the entire labor movement, drawing more black, brown, and leaders in, more women leaders into leadership in the labor movement, and putting the rank and file in the driver's seat. Many of the unions in the United States don't do that. That's a matter of fact. Their thrust is not to involve the rank and file. They might want to mobilize them for a march or to vote for Joe Biden. All that is fine, but it's much too minimal. It turns the members into consumers. And they become alienated from the union. They see the only thing the union told them to do was to vote for Joe Biden. Many of them don't even like Joe Biden. So how are you going to get, convince them politically when you haven't convinced them to be involved in their own union? And that's what TDU is about. How did you convince TDU to get involved with O'Brien, who, of course, was linked with Hoffa all these years? What made the critical edge for you to decide to support this administration? That's a good question. There's an election every five years in the Teamsters. We do have the right to vote. It's critical. In 2016, we had allied with Fred Zuckerman. He had previously been an appointee of President Hoffa. But he had broken with Hoffa, and especially over contracts and militancy and supporting strikes and supporting members. As he said here tonight, when the members want to fight, we're going to be with them and we're going to help lead them. One of the goals that Teams of the United and Teams of the Democratic Union have is to take on Amazon, the Amazon drivers, empower them. How will that be done? That's a big question and uh, the, how it will be done is, is open and it certainly isn't going to happen short term. There are small organizing efforts now. I think they need to be nurtured. There needs to be a national program. I think the Teamsters need to take the lead. The Teamsters is a logistics union. But all the labor movement needs to get involved, all the unions. And we need to draw in community groups, political leaders that are supportive. And one of the things that Sean O'Brien said at the TDU convention is, we have to show we can win. You've been listening to Building Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Educate, agitate, and organize for the empowerment of we the people for another world is possible. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. 
Farm workers in New York State won some very basic rights in 2019 with passage of the Farm Workers Fair Labor Practices Act. Those rights, which the New York State AFL-CIO has been fighting for years, include the right to organize a union, a mandatory day of rest, and the right to overtime pay. The overtime pay portion of the new law took effect in January of 2020. So as of then, farm workers are now paid time and a half for work over 60 hours per week. But the law also established a wage board to consider reducing the overtime threshold below 60 hours per week. In New York, the state wage board determines how many hours employees work before they get paid overtime, time and a half. Right now, for ag workers, it's 60 hours a week. Joining me on the podcast to talk about the overtime threshold is a member of that wage board, Dennis Hughes. Dennis, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Darcy. And I want to point out to our listeners, too, uh, I want them to know that you're the former president of the New York State AFL-CIO and a decades-long champion of farm worker rights, and we appreciate your commitment to fighting on behalf of farm workers and all of workers. Thank you, Deb. Thank you. It's uh, been 10 years this month that I... Uh Retired from the AFL-CIO. Yeah, time goes quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> Dennis, you're a representative for labor on the wage board. Can you talk about what the board was tasked with and what your message was to the board? The board was tasked with figuring out a solution to the concept that the farm workers have a 60-hour wage threshold, where every other worker in the state of New York has a 40-hour threshold. In other words, after 40 hours, the worker receives a time and a half for the work that they do, anything past an eight-hour day. We were asked to make a determination and take a vote on a resolution. And the re- resolution initially placed by the board itself, by the chairman of the board, was to extend the status quo, the 60-hour status quo, indefinitely because of the issue of COVID and other prevailing uh, issues at the time. And I changed that. And what we, what I did was uh, suggest that we have a 10-year phase-out of the 60-hour uh, phase-out into a 40-hour work threshold mm-hmm. with gradual increments uh, as we went along. In other words, the first year, I don't know exact, but it, it was something like every other year we reduced the threshold by a, maybe an hour and a half till we got to the uh, two and a half hours till we got to the point where it was a 48-hour week. 10 years is a reasonable amount of time, for sure, to give the farmers time to adjust. I mean, they've had a bunch of years already, that's for sure. No, since uh, what labor labor standards is, uh, what, 1930s? Right. That's 90 years, mm-hmm. you know, almost 90 years. They've had a lot of time to adjust, but they haven't. They think they have a right to have a different take on employment and standards for employment that the people that they hire. Uh, they have a tradition of not, not being very innovative in this particular set of issues. So I don't really, gosh, I've been doing this a long time. I will just leave by saying this, that farmers have, the Farm Bureau has an opportunity to really work with the labor movement and the advocate for farm workers to work out something that works for them as well as works for the for the for the farm workers themselves, but I don't. I think that they're going to resist it. I think they're going to keep fighting for the status quo, and then eventually, over time, they're going to something is going to be forced on them that they don't like, and that's not really the best way to handle this. Mm-hmm. But that's what they should expect if they continue to be non-cooperative when it comes to straightening out this long-term labor relations embarrassment that is the fate of farm workers. Right. None of us want to see farmers fail. We want them to succeed. We just want there to be uh, fairness for those workers. And Dennis, I can certainly hear the frustration in your voice. Um, I can hear the passion on the you have on the issue, too. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. I know we'll hear an answer soon in a matter of weeks, but thanks for uh, talking to us. It's very nice and generous of you to have me on. It is. It's been a, a very long uh, couple of years, I know, with this and, and the, everything standing still because of COVID. And now here we back. We're back here again at toward the end of the year. And, and it is frustrating. So we're glad that you were there, though, for the voice of labor. We do appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Welcome, sisters and brothers, to another episode of AFT in Action. My name is Jan Hockadell, your State Fed President, and your co-host once again for this latest episode. Today, we will be discussing a major concern that our educators are facing, 
and that is protecting educators' freedom to teach. I have had many conversations about what's real in education with the two women that are joining me today as co-hosts. First, I would like to introduce Kate Diaz, who was recently elected as the president of the Connecticut Education Association, or CEA. And I would like to introduce Franna Benowitz, who is the executive director of the Connecticut Association for Public School Superintendents, or CAPS, and has been since 2017. We are so fortunate to have with us one of our two U.S. senators who has really been out there talking with our educators in Connecticut on this very issue. After serving in the U.S. House representing Connecticut's 5th Congressional District for six years, Senator Murphy was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2012. Senator, welcome, and we are so looking forward to this discussion with you. You just coordinated a roundtable um, discussion on CRT with our Middletown teachers yep. and the administrators, the students, the parents. And I was just wondering if you could share your thoughts on why is it that these special interest groups are seeking to politicize the teaching of U.S. history and civics? It's no secret that we have a crowd of people in this country right now that want to divide us from each other, that want us to affiliate with our tribe and view everybody else as those to be feared. They're playing a song that unfortunately is well known. Many demagogues and demagogic movements in the past have you know, tried to divide us from each other. And that's what this focus on CRT is all about, to make up this story that teachers are telling white kids that they should be ashamed of their race or ashamed of their background as part of the curriculum in schools. That is not happening. This is part of a political agenda to try to make us fear each other. Senator, I appreciate what you're saying, because I think a lot of our educators are feeling the heat, if you will, on a deeply personal level. It comes down to there are times when there's parents in their classroom saying, I don't want my child here because you are teaching too progressively. I've been firsthand witness at a, several board of ed meetings that I was quite frankly, quite stunned at what people were so blatant in terms of their presentation of what they believe to be true and how unconcerned we were with what was actually true. And so I think one of the concerns facing our educators is the real divide in the community, because I think at the end of the day, we still serve these communities. And if they're deeply divided, what's the plan for coming back? Yeah, listen, I think the, I think it's got to start with not being dismissive of these parents and their concerns, right? We, we all come from the same place. We care about our kids, right? We're in that board of education meeting because we want um, our schools to do well for our kids. And so I think it involves just spending the time with these parents to really listen. You gotta ask people, okay, what are you, what are you worried about? Tell me the sort of foundation of that fear. Okay, let me tell you what's really happening in the schools, but tell me how you think it can change. How can we make it better? Let's take the issue of race or the issue of America's history of slavery. How do you think we should teach it? And I think more often than not, the parents that are showing up believing that CRT is being taught in our schools may articulate a vision of pedagogy that is not unfamiliar to what is actually being taught. We know that you are out there having the conversations. How can we engage other elected leaders to help educators in Connecticut to demystify what's actually real in education? Asking legislators to do something they're totally unfamiliar with, dedicating a whole day to one thing. Asking state legislators and members of Congress to spend a whole day in a school, spend the time fly on the wall, watching education happen, sit down for a while and talk to the social worker, talk to the uh, principal, just to spend a little time trying to immerse yourself in life is like uh, right now inside our schools. And I think you'll find two things. One, the rumors about the politics creeping into the classroom are not true. But two, you'll find teachers and administrators in a little bit of trouble right now. You're going to find folks that need some real help. And I think that will grow their sympathy, not just for setting the record straight about what's happening, but getting some resources into the classrooms to help at this moment, a moment when kids are coming back after the pandemic with just a set of things on their shoulders that you know we didn't see prior to the pandemic. So that would be my suggestion. Thank you so much for joining us as our special guest, but also for answering our members' questions and for just your 
advocacy and education right now, and especially with the freedom to teach. We thank you so much. Thanks, all. Thank you for listening and for all you do. My name is Judy Gerhardt, and this is The Labor Link, a podcast about workers' rights and global supply chains, where we share the personal stories and perspectives of the brave individuals organizing the workers who make our stuff. So I've been working on apparel industry reforms for more than 20 years, and it's been a lot like watching a dog chase its tail. Despite all the money and efforts the brands put into monitoring, they don't address the structural issues that could actually prevent worker rights abuses from happening. Cambodia is a place where the U.S. used trade and business incentives to advance systemic protections for apparel worker rights, yet the country's crumbling democracy, evidenced by Prime Minister Hun Sen's absolute majority in Parliament, has reversed those reforms. Increasingly, independent union leaders and worker advocates, including Tola Moon, have been charged for political crimes they didn't commit. Recently, I talked with Tola about the challenges of worker organizing, COVID-19, and the need for consumer countries like the U.S. and Germany to better regulate the impact of our global corporations abroad. My name is Talamun. I work for Center for Alliance of Labor and Human Rights. It's a local non-governmental or non-profit organizations. So Tola, can you tell me about Central's advocacy goals and the way you organize? Well, our vision is to see the real power of the people. We wish to see that the working people should know their own powers and utilize their power. People need to be educated. People need to be organized. When we are talking about power, the more you are organized, the more number you have, it means the more power you're going to gain. And then that real power would fix the key fundamental rights to organize, right to collective bargaining, and then uh, right to express your opinion. For example, we joined with the other international partner, including a clean Clo campaign and the other trade union across the globe to demand to the brand to allocate uh, some budget to release their long-term profits to what we call is pay your work campaign. So this campaign is pushing the brand to be accountable for paying back to the workers, the, the wage theft or people lost income. So if the factory closed, the, the brand still have the responsibility to pay the, the compensation to the workers. At the same time, they should allocate for reserve fund for the social assistance. So. The worker, they just earn very little income and they do not have any capacity to make any saving. So this is very important that the brand or the international company need to allocate a reserve fund for this kind of crisis. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just been horrible watching what's been happening. The Worker Rights Consortium has documented wage theft where severance was not paid. Some of the brands didn't pay for orders that had already been in production at the time the pandemic hit. And the numbers are quite high. And I'm wondering how that's affected Cambodia as far as not just brands should pay into a reserve fund, but brands haven't paid money they actually owed, or they haven't made sure that their factories pay the money they've owed. Actually, Central also joined with the data collections in terms of the wage loss and the brands still owe millions of dollars to the workers due to the pandemic or the cancellations of the orders and so on. Although we have not come into any written agreement yet, this kind of report documentation is strong enough and it is clear evident that the brand still owe the workers. So it is very important that people need to speak out. It is very important that we need to document evidence. So if the brand really care about CSR, uh, corporate social responsibility, this is something that we could tell the, the consumers that brand have not take a serious responsibility for their business code conduct yet. There should be most civil sanction and financial penalties for those companies who involve the labor violation or human rights violation in their producing country or 
through their supply chain. Unless we have laws that put the legal binding for the international company, the brand can make any excuse, ignoring the, the exploitation, ignoring the violation of the workers' rights or labor rights in the supply chain. I hope Tola's interview will motivate more people in consumer countries like the U.S., Germany, or Japan to advocate for laws that hold global corporations accountable in their country of origin for the rights of workers making the stuff they sell. Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. In this episode, Fair World Project's campaign manager, Anna Canning, talks to Claire Kellaway of Open Markets Institute about all the money, and power and influence that's at stake in the dairy industry. Hey, it's Anna. I'm back. And this episode, well, before we get started, I'm going to warn you. The best analogy I've got is probably going to date me, but you know Miss Frizzle and the Magic School Bus? Please let this be a normal field trip with a friend. No! Well, every story starts off kind of normally, like a regular school bus driving down the road, and then three, two, one, blast off. They're on a whirlwind into another world, like an unseen part of the solar system or the inner workings of the human body. Something that powers the things that we see every day, but isn't so clearly visible. Well, this episode is that blast off moment. So far, we've heard from farmer organizers and farmers. And often, the story stops at this. Farmers need more money for their milk, and workers need better wages and protections. Stuck at an impasse. Well, today we're taking a trip right into the makings of that impasse. The rigged system that's hurting farmers, workers, and really all of us who want good food and a habitable planet. My guest today is Claire Kellaway. I am a reporter and researcher at the Open Markets Institute, which is a think tank that covers anti-monopoly policy. Anti-monopoly policies keep powerful companies in check. They're the rules that aim to keep markets functioning in a way that's fair, instead of letting big companies bully the smaller players out. But Claire didn't start out working on policy. Instead, she was working for one of the big companies that supply food to college campuses. And I felt like this corporation had dedicated leadership, really believed that business was the way to change the food system, and also served an elite clientele. So they had the resources and the money to invest in the right things. And, you know, even though they were doing their best. I kept seeing how the market structures and the policies and the rules of the game really shaped what was available, shaped the way they did business. Bad food at college cafeterias is a cliche, but that's not an accident. Since she left her job working for a cafeteria contractor, Claire has done some reporting that uncovers just why it is that bad food is the norm in college cafeterias. The reality is that at every step, the system is rigged to favor the big national and multinational food companies. And even if there's someone in that system with good intentions, wanting to buy local food or more fair or humane food, the existing rules make it so that the producers they'd want to work with are all too often locked out of the system. Cooperatives are a way for farmers to bundle their product together and bargain for a better price, get a contract, meet a certain supply volume, guarantee supply to a processor, and share things like transportation and, and storage. Ever smelled milk left out on a hot day? Then I'm guessing you know just how important timely transportation and refrigeration are for the dairy industry. But that sort of large-scale infrastructure is beyond the means of many small-scale farmers. And so, 
cooperatives have long been an essential part of the dairy industry. But like a lot of agriculture, they've also been facing pressures to consolidate themselves in order to negotiate with like bigger and bigger buyers, or they feel pressure to vertically integrate in the same way that Walmart is buying processors. You also see cooperatives buying processors and taking processing. This can sometimes be really great uh, to cut out middlemen and, you know, share more of the wealth directly with farmers and cooperatively own your own processing plant. There can be a conflict of interest when really, really big cooperatives are owning processing if, you know, they're making choices to keep those profits with the processing business, with their executives, with their management, and not actually, you know, sharing that with the farmers. And so, yeah, that becomes an issue where this entity that is supposed to be negotiating for you and supposed to be getting you a fair price and making sure your milk in this instance has a place to go might actually be now squeezing you as the, you know, only place where you can sell your milk and possibly the only place where you can process it um, or your only connection to processors and yeah, really um, getting some perverse incentives. This is absolutely not the same thing as the story of Mandavira Cooperative. And the biggest of those mega cooperatives is called Dairy Farmers of America. Through a series of mergers and buying up smaller local cooperatives, they've gotten absolutely massive. 30% of all the milk in the United States passes through this one company. That's a significant amount of the milk market that they control. And that puts Dairy Farmers of America in a very powerful position. Okay, so that magic school bus we started on is now spinning deep in the inner workings of the pipeline taking milk from the barn to the supermarket. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Our show is edited by Joshua Moore. Katie Gardner is our producer. Anna Canning is our scriptwriter. Our storytellers are Ryan Zinn and Anna Canning. Our music was composed by Mark Robertson. And I'm your host and executive director of Fairworld Project, Dana Geffner. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. the great pleasure of getting to interview one of the hosts of a great show called Rebel Steps. Rebel Steps it is a wonderful podcast. So much like practical organizing advice and wisdom shared. How long have you been doing that show? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, uh, my sister and I started working on it in 2017, but we didn't release the first episodes till 2018. So a few years now. So folks listening, if you haven't encountered Rebel Steps, you really need to go check it out. And on the subject of organizing, you and I have been talking about this idea you had for organizing a fictional workplace that has become kind of a recurring theme of the show is somewhat informal mini series of Labor Wave Radio as we take a fictional workplace and imagine what would happen if the workers there organized a union at that place. And your proposal was to focus on the fictional hotel in the island of Hawaii from White Lotus. So I, that show was really good, I thought. Conflicting. You know, I had a lot of uh, mixed emotions when watching it. But I love the idea of the hotel workers and White Lotus organizing. So why don't you go ahead and give us a brief summary of 
the experiences of work there, like what are these staffers dealing with being hotel workers in White Lotus and why is it necessary to organize there? Well, thanks for taking me up on this idea because I I got really excited about your fictional workplace series. Um, Part of the reason this spoke to me is I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't worked in a hotel, but I did work at a very fancy restaurant that was in a very fancy hotel. So I didn't work for the hotel, but I worked for the restaurant. And when I was watching this, I just, uh, I just like really felt a lot of those scenes um, where you have these like very intense interactions with guests who are just kind of on their own, their own planet. So um, just to summarize some of the many things that happen, well, one, you have guests who are very demanding, not only of like the resources of the resort, but also of people's like emotional support. So you have a few characters who are just really leaned on to like, help guests through really challenging emotional situations. There's also a manager. Um, okay, we should just say, also say, spoiler alert, do not listen if you want to watch this and not know the ending. So I'm just trusting you all out there. I'm about to spoil it. <laughs> but the, the manager who, uh, you know, is sort of the epicenter of a lot of the drama does engage in some sexual harassment of one of the employees. Um, and that's sort of an, a recurring theme. He also just sort of like uses his employees to get back at guests in ways that are really bizarre. And then the the employees are having to really bear the brunt of that. So those are like a few things that that stuck out to me. What were some of the things that, that you thought about, like the, the working conditions that they faced throughout the series? Well, one of the moments that I like the first episode was where it really clicked for me that I love the show. Like I didn't even have to see the whole series before just being into it. And it was because the first episode, among other storylines that are happening, revolves around this new employee who on their first day of work is pregnant and is going into labor, but has to pretend as if they are not going into labor throughout the whole episode so they can put on like a brave face, get through their orientation day and still, you know, make a buck while they're doing it. And if that just doesn't speak volumes about the lack of protection, the lack of agency these workers have, you know, the the difficulties of these working conditions. You know, I don't know what else needs to be uttered to convince people uh, <laughs> that there's problems here. And then like you say, Armand, the manager, he's a character that I have conflicted views of because in some places I love him. He, like, he does kind of mess and fuck around with you know, the hotel guests. Like, he takes his own private revenge in certain scenarios, but then he goes to these extremes and he abuses his power. He knows that he is in this pecking order, that he is like in the middle of a hierarchy where he, I think at one moment in the show, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but he expresses it like, I get shit from the top and what they expect me to do is give shit to everybody else. And that's what this is, (laughs) you know? He's very conscious and very aware of the dynamic and kind of just pulls the veil off. So in some cases I love Armand, but in others, like you say, he's he's a boss. Yeah, absolutely. I think that first episode really sets the stage for how run over the employees are, because you also have Armand explaining to our, um, you know, the kind of the protagonist of that episode, Lonnie, who's going through labor. He turns to her and is just like, you know, our, our goal is to be pleasant and interchangeable. You know, the guest doesn't even know what they want. We just sort of like give it to them and go away. And like, and I think also that sort of like interchangeability is something that's really key in hospitality. And he just like comes out and says that he's just like, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are. We're just kind of like, in the background, making all the magic happen. Liz, thanks so much again for being on Labor Wave. And one more time for folks, if you haven't listened to Rebel Steps, check it out as soon as you can. It is a great podcast with lots of great insights. Thanks again for having me. Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast dedicated to shining a light on British Columbia's rich labor heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. Today, we focus on an epic confrontation just before World War II between workers fighting for justice and an arrogant company with authorities in their hip pocket. It has come to be known as the Battle of Blubber Bay. The name Blubber Bay came from its previous existence as a whaling station on the north end of Texada Island. 
but by the 1930s, it was home to an enormous open-pit limestone mine. Over 30 years, starting just after the turn of the century, workers, many of them Chinese, had quarried the 250-foot deep glory hole with little labor turmoil, despite wretched working conditions. But an obstinate mine manager and a wage cut motivated workers to join the International Woodworkers of America. A six-week strike by the union in 1937 erased the wage cut. The company further promised to take no action against union activists, even though that was par for the course in those days, when unions had no legal rights. Yet, once production resumed, Pacific Lime fired local union president Jack Hole and 22 other union supporters. Rather than strike again so soon, the IWA opted to try and overturn the firings through BC's new conciliation and arbitration process. After lengthy hearings, an arbitration board recommended that the fired trade unionists be hired back. However, with no legal requirement to recognize the IWA, Pacific Lime simply ignored the board's recommendation, and that was that. At an angry public meeting, workers voted overwhelmingly to reject the board's award. On June 2, 1938, two-thirds of the company's 150-strong workforce walked off the job. For the IWA, the strike represented a last-ditch effort to try and secure a foothold in British Columbia. Most of the IWA's focus had been on the province's loggers and sawmill workers. The union had heroic organizers and strong leaders, but try as they might, they could not force companies to recognize their union. The future would be better, but in British Columbia, in 1938, it was tough slogging. Songwriter Joe Glazer pays tribute to the union in his rousing IWA marching song. Bay to North Bay, Laurel to Lance, Kamloops to Tassis to Trail. The Woodworkers Union, our strongest response, will fight till we prevail. Logging hands and plywood mills, fur and southern pine. Democracy, autonomy, the union, yours and mine. Bosses fear the rank and file will join for victory. The international woodworkers will fight for you and me. Wages and pensions, children to feed, sick leave and holiday pay. Fighting together, we'll get what we need within the IWA. Logging camps and plywood mills, Fur and Southern Pine. Democracy, autonomy, the union, yours and mine. Bosses fear the rank and file will join for victory. The international woodworkers will fight for you and me. people can come to their goal of jobs that are safe with high pay. The leader of workers, you ought to be told, will still be IWA. Logging camps and plywood mills, fur and southern pine. Democracy, autonomy, the union, yours and mine. Bosses fear the rank and file will join for victory. The international woodworkers will fight for you and me. Blubber Bay turned into a strike like no other. The company acted like a law unto itself, aided by a hostile anti-union provincial police force and an equally hostile government. Along with the usual trappings of a company store and company-owned housing, virtually all private property and facilities in Blubber Bay belonged to Pacific Lime. 
How bad was it? Children of the strikers had to obtain a special pass from the company so they could use its roads just to attend school. Strikers were routinely denied access to telephone and telegraph services. When union leaders were able to use them, police monitored their calls and previewed their telegram. If they wandered too far astray, strikers were often followed and thrashed by company thugs. Chinese strikers were quickly ordered out of their bunkhouses. When union lawyer John Stanton entered the bunkhouses with three of those evicted to retrieve some of their belongings, they were arrested for trespassing. Although the men were soon released, this was the sort of company intimidation that strikers faced throughout their valiant struggle. Thanks for listening, and thanks, as always, to Bailey Garden and Patricia Weir, the other members of the podcast crew. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on The Line. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast, a weekly hour roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon, Mel Smith, and me. And our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at Labor Radio Network. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.